Hey everyone, it's Nick Karadza here, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Terms show, we speak with Lawrence Verponi and Cosme Reveredo from Equiton. Equiton does a bunch of investing in and around Ontario and other areas of Canada. Um, really in the mid-rise sector, they have a couple funds that they manage, they, they do some development projects. So it's interesting to get their take on what they're seeing in the market and how they're evaluating the current market and the opportunities um, they're looking at. We talked about a bunch of different things, uh, we t- touched on immigration, uh, th- these immigration numbers and the supply and demand that we hear about being out of whack is that a load of bs or is that something that that's really mattering what the future really looks like for investing for them and what they're looking at and like what factors they take into account with their investing and really the asset classes they play in and and why specifically those asset classes so it was interesting to hear from their perspective when they're deploying a bunch of investors money into these different projects and these different opportunities and what they're looking for and what they're looking for in the near term as the, the landscape shifts. So if you like this type of thing or anything around real estate investing, um, you can always go to rockstarinnercircle.com. That's our, our, our website where we have a bunch of different videos and more podcasts and articles and newsletters. Sign up for our newsletter there if th- this is the type of stuff you're interested in. Or hit us up on Instagram. Um, it's just at rockstarinnercircle. So at Instagram, that's our handle. We're headed down shortly to Florida for our first Florida trip with a bunch of different investors evaluating some opportunities down there, uh, some built to rent opportunities with, with Jim Shields, who we've had as a guest on the podcast as well. So we'll be posting all that stuff. If, if you want to get on our mailing list, we'll be emailing out a bunch of things around that, or um, we're taking some people down that are going to be, be splashing some different things up on Instagram to give people a heads up as to what we're seeing and how it's going down there as well. So you can jump on there to see how the Florida trip's going or anything else we're seeing in the markets too. So with that, I hope you enjoyed the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. All right, awesome. So we are live. Um... So it's Lawrence Raponi, and you said with Lawrence, not Larry, it's Lawrence Raponi. It sounded like when you said that there was some like grade school stuff that kind of happened that, they could, you know, the Larry Raponi doesn't go well together or something. Larry Raponi sounds awkward, but truthfully, only my mother calls me Lawrence. Oh, really? Work, all my clients, Larry, Larry, Larry. Oh, perfect. So we're going to call you Lawrence then. This is, this is <laughs> great. This is great. And Cosme Reveredo. Reveredo, you nailed it. Which I just learned is Portuguese-influenced Portuguese. Indian name. Yeah, so um, my family's from a coastal state, um, uh, Goa, um, just, you know, on the south south of India, we'll say. But it used to be a Portuguese colony just over, I want to say, about 50 years ago now. It used to be a Portuguese colony. Um, yeah, so the name is Portuguese influenced and inspired. My first name actually comes from Cosma, which is, I guess, um, popular in Portugal. I don't actually know, but uh, so it's it's a bit of a spinoff of that name. I didn't know there was any Portuguese, like, you know, like any areas that had like a Portuguese influence. In I mean, po- Portugal colonized quite a bit of, um, you know, of the world actually right way, way back when but i mean there's influences all around into africa as well um you know uh, kenya and tanzania you'll find uh, goans there as well so wow yeah, it's an interesting little mix um uh, i wish i did more 
research into my own uh, history, I guess. But yeah, there's a bit of a Portuguese influence. I think as we get older, we all kind of do. It's interesting to look back and see what the hell, yeah, Yeah. to see what's going on. I know when, you know, we come from, we're born here, but our parents um, come from both interesting parts of the world because our mom's Scottish. And if you look at like all the just kind of fighting and stuff that happened over in that area of the world, and then our dad's Croatian. And then if you look at all the, like there's just the mix and the mesh of people that are in that world fighting you know it's just been it's it's, it's two interesting parts of the world yeah. it's so weird when we go back to like you know talking about india mm-hmm. or europe or those places and, and and even our kids now they're like i don't get it so we come they come back to canada they're like we just don't have it's not that we don't have history it's just the length of time here there's just the history that we know of yeah. from being that, that history is so small it's yeah. quick yeah. Right? Well, it's we're all sons of immigrants i'm yeah. assuming it's all how we got here unless you're native and so we're ponies that's gonna be italian, we're italian yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly and i'm first generation italian i don't know if you guys are first or second but it is what it is our history started when our mothers and fathers got off the boat Right? Yeah. That's that's what I remember. But the older we get, and this is hitting home with me now because I'm expecting my first kid in about five weeks, um, you start to think more about where you came from, right? The older you get, the more you sort of look backwards and the, the broader your perspective becomes, right? You know what's interesting to me, like what you said, our, our parents came here and they had no network, they didn't have much. So when we were, when we were growing up, you know, my parents had some friends, but then there wasn't this kind of like, network of people locally that they really knew and then you know we built that because we had our friends so our friends you know were a, a bigger base and you know knew more and more people and then through business and what we do we've met more and more people like you guys and everything and I'm just looking back and I'm like oh it's very interesting because as time's gone on there's always like you know, my kids now are like, well, what about this? I'm like, well, we know this guy for this, and or we know this person for this. There's, there's always like this this person you know in, in, in so many different industries. And it's a real leg up because when you have your roots someplace, it makes such a difference, not even just about the, 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 the amount of time you've been here and the money, but just your network of people that you can reach out to, that your mm-hmm. kids, so you're going to have a kid soon. So yeah. when, when's that? Son, so, uh, I'm having a baby boy, and he's coming uh, Christmas Eve, the oh my 24th God, that's of cool. December. I'm not going to so. say congratulations yet. I'll, uh, you know, I'll make uh, we'll sure wait, everything we'll goes good. Weeks, yeah, yeah. The next podcast. Yeah, that's, that's cool. But, but, but that's what I mean. So, so when he grows up, through you, he, you know, his network around here is going to be so vastly different than even when you grew up. Exactly. But even back then, so when, when my parents came here, they might have been, I don't know, 16, 17. So did education in Italy, didn't speak any English until they came here. But all my Paisani, all my family friends are, are, are the guys. Yeah, and yeah. That's what we call them. Yeah, right? sure. It's unofficial family. Hey, Paisan. They, they're the people that came over on the boat with us from the, the same small town that my grandfather was from. And that's actually how we got started in real estate. So my grandfather started buying real estate the second he got off the boat, essentially. He started a bricklaying business and started buying plots of land. <laughs> and he would go in on properties with the Paisani, the people he came here with off the boats because they didn't have enough money individually to go and buy a house even back then at the lower so prices. So why did they buy real estate? Like why was he so interested in buying real estate when he came here so early? It's, it, I think it's hard to say for certain he's passed on decades yeah. ago, but um, I, I think, and this is the reason why I like real estate and maybe so many other Canadians, it's a simple asset class, right? You, t- you look at something like the stock market and you're investing in something that frankly, we know very little about, we have very little control over it, what's moving the market, you're just kind of riding in a current on someone else's ship. Real estate's simple, right? You can value it, you can see where your cash flows are coming from, from rent, you know what your expenditures are gonna be, whether it's taxes, utility bills, it doesn't matter. So for a new immigrant like my grandfather, it was easy to piece it together. 
right? Mm-hmm. Now you, you couple that with the fact that you can live in it and raise a family, it's a no brainer, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why I think so many people gravitate towards that asset class. And same thing, you feel the same way, Cosmo? Honestly, to be honest, my, my family was largely, you know, and I think this is traditional with most Indian families, you know, as, as far as storing wealth, they turn to gold. <laughs> I, I, and yeah. I've always respected the Indian culture for that. Yeah. I'm like, these guys get it. Yeah, just, Especially the, the women when they come here in Canada, they're like, don't worry, these 50 gold bracelets that I have on my arm, that's just jewelry. That's yeah. not me taking money across the border. That's nothing, nothing at all. I, that's yeah, I'm not saying anything, but yeah, I mean, like, yeah. I'm like, I, I figured you guys out. Right? Yeah, no, because my, my family and my father traditional, you know, just pay everything in cash, everything, hold in cash or just hold it in gold. And, you know, we'd never really thought about real estate i didn't even get exposed to real estate until university i think it's the same with you as well and mm-hmm. when you first made your first universe or first real estate purchase so for me it wasn't even until university when i decided oh the real estate there's something here there's um you know way to sort of build some kind of generational wealth through real estate especially here in canada um and that's sort of when my mindset i guess shifted personally so yeah it's interesting to see because I, I feel like you don't take things for uh, what from cultures with longer history than we have here, they've seen the benefit of things like gold, mm-hmm. of things like real estate, because, well, the Italians are into gold in a big way as well, right? We they, are. They've, all, they've always gotten that as well, because yeah. you see it, but when, when our history is shorter, you don't see, you haven't gone through these cycles, these monetary cycles, where you kind of get, what we've seen over the last few years, you get debased and you kind of get really, you know, wiped out from an inflationary standpoint if you have savings or you don't have these hard assets. And that's why I feel like a lot of immigrants from these countries with longer histories, when they can look at their grandfather, great-grandfather, past generations, and they tell them like, hey, here's the lessons we've learned because in this country, here's what's happened with money in the past. And it just kind of makes a difference, right? Mm-hmm. What, uh, what are you guys seeing right now? So at Equiton, what do you guys, what's the latest? Like, are you guys have your apartment REITs, you have some developments. So what's, let's start with the the apartment side of stuff. What's, yeah. going, what's going on well, there? Maybe we will take a step back. I, I, I'm an AVP at Equiton. Cosme is a senior associate at Equiton. For, for the listeners that don't know, Equiton's a passive real estate investment firm, right? We're giving investors exposure to physical real estate assets, but without many of the hurdles that typically exist with real estate investing. In, in the GTA, it's really that massive down payment that's required, the need for financing, which is a hot topic today, and then of course being a landlord yourself, which- But just accredited investors or no? No, uh, we can accept investors from anyone as long as they're over the age of 18, Okay, honestly. So it's it's a pretty broad swath of clients we have. We'd like to think we democratize the world of real estate investing in some small way. Um, I, I look at the market today, things are, things are changing, right? Things have been changing from those that period of time, maybe a decade ago with 0% or, or bare bottom interest rates. Um, I'm seeing a market today characterized by three forces. Uh, first is immigration. We're seeing a massive influx of, of new Canadians, international students, primary residents, whatever the case may be. Um, and that's, of course, putting uh, constraints on the uh, demand for housing, right? It's increasing the demand for housing. Uh, second thing we're seeing is interest rates are high and everyone knows that it's a no brainer. That's increasing the carrying costs for housing. And thirdly, it's the structural impediments to onboarding new housing supply, right? As a developer, which Equiton is, it's really hard to bring new housing supply to market, right? It's very inefficient, it's time consuming, and it's expensive. Those three market forces together are impacting the market in some pretty weird ways. Right, and so maybe maybe we'll flush out those ideas yeah. over the next hour. Here's something I want to ask you. So I've always looked at things. We've been following this immigration story for before it was a hot topic. So I, I forget the first time I looked at. I looked back. I think it was twenty. I want to. I want to say twenty sixteen. I'll say twenty eighteen was the first time we started running some rough numbers. Um, 
actually now that I'm thinking of the chart that I'm looking at, it might be 2016. And we're like, something's not adding up here. And we started looking at immigration numbers and we looked at past supply and the numbers were really rough with, with what we could find at that time. And, and that's when we started looking at this immigration number and we're like, wow, this thing's, something's out of whack here. But now that everyone's talking about it, you know, so we're, we're contrary people. I'm always looking like if the, if, if the masses are going one way, I'm like, why the hell is everyone going that way? I need to be going the other way. Like, should I be going the other way? So I'm looking around. And now that everyone's talking about this immigration number, I look around and I, I have to question my own belief because I believe it. Like, I know, I know the numbers and I know it's true. And I'm just like, what am I missing about this? Like, you know, is this, can this, can the bottom fall out of this pretty quick? And I guess the only thing I see, I know they just came out with their their, their, ne- their next forecast. So it was 500,000 pretty much moving forward is what they're looking for. Um, and then their non-permanent residents have really thrown things out of whack. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, so maybe they pull back those non-permanent resident numbers, but then that's still that 500,000 yeah. permanent resident number is really big. It's it's really, really big. Well, let, let, let's dissect that a bit. So last year, 2022, the target for immigration, net new entrants into the country was 500,000. They came through with a million. It was an all-time record high influx of, of populace into our country. That excludes um, what I would call, uh, I guess, I don't know what I would call them, but non-permanent residents. So things are things like international students, right? Very, very hard to use that as a, a barometer and judge how much international students yeah, are coming it's, through. Yeah, it's, it's, it's temporary, an temporary work permits and student exactly. visas are typically the majority that make up the non-permanent resident number. Exactly. And that's hard to track. So last year was a million and it was what it was. This year, we're saying 500,000, 2024 and 2025, again, 500,000. So between now and 2025, we're expecting approximately 1.5 million net new migrants to the country. I, uh, I, I'm not convinced that the government is going to put a cap on that anytime soon. We need these net new entrants because if you're a politician, you're looking at this as a way to boost and bolster economic growth. Yeah, that's how they're right? trying to grow. Our, our GDP yeah. is not growing on a per capita basis anywhere near the level of our neighbors to the south, right? Our economic growth is driven primarily by population growth. And that's a dangerous position to be in because we're reliant on these net uh, immigrants, right? We need them, right? They're going to make life better for everyone. But of course, it poses other problems as well, right? Supply for housing is the big one. Well, yeah, well, roads, hospitals, and infrastructure, like, yep. like anything, and any any provincially regulated infrastructure, yeah. healthcare, education. So the thing roads. that's blown our, our our mind before is is when you look at it, the the immigration number, regardless of what their target is, and they, they, unless changes are made, our immigration policies are, are really being dictated by the post secondary institutions. Because because once they have, and it's not guaranteed that they have to get in once they have an acceptance to one of these institutions, but the the, uh, the, the odds of you getting a student visa once you have an acceptance go up dramatically. Because I said I said in the past on a podcast that like, hey, basically once you get the student the thing, it's like you get the student visa. It's almost and someone visa. someone's correct me. Well, it's not guaranteed. I'm like, okay, okay. So if you're listening there, I'm not saying it's guaranteed. Okay, but the the odds are like I don't know the percentage, but it's like 95 plus percent. And then that's why we get all these random schools opening up and even the big schools that were established now they're opening up like 15 other campuses and all these small areas and like they 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 rent out a unit in a strip mall for sure all of a sudden and but they're driving immigration numbers so we have the federal government not talking to the the, the, the provincial municipal governments 
We have people in the private sector that are incentivized to get people here because they're, if you look at the revenues from these schools, the vast majority of the revenue of these schools are, 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 are being driven from international students. Yeah. So they're just pumping more people in. So like we, no one's talking to each other. So we have this huge population boom and we've had no infrastructure to your point housing and it's just screwing up the dynamics everywhere. Yeah, even with uh, international students, I mean, there's recruitment campaigns across the country or sorry, across the globe rather to bring in these international students that, you know, whether or not anyone or, or anyone here wants to sort of admit to it, <laughs> there's quite a few um, of these recruitment programs going on that I know personally. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, that just to target. Well, you're so, from India. If you have in, people in India that didn't want to say, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, we, Keith, uh, Keith, someone on our team here, our marketing manager, Keith, he, he gives us the inside scoop on exactly what's going on in India all the yeah. time. It's like, guys, you have no idea how big this industry is there. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So... Okay, so then with that, so let's circle back to then what are you guys seeing? So with this now, with that population boom, specifically students, is that even an area you you guys are looking in, some student housing stuff? Or are you guys, you, you don't, you know, that's like, no, no, you're just looking at the bigger picture. Cause? Yeah, largely residential is our focus, right? I mean, our apartment fund is largely residential focused, and we just picked up another building actually just um Two weeks ago, I think acquired mm -hmm. uh, officially in London. So it's our third property in London, I believe. Third property. Um, where, 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 where is the fund primarily focused? Focused, yeah. Yeah, largely focused in Ontario. We do have two buildings out in Edmonton as well. Okay, that we picked up last year. Um, I mean, primary, primary for now, at least primarily Ontario. Yeah, yep. I mean, our home base okay. is Burlington, right? I mean, um, you know, so if you go around the peripheral areas around Burlington, that's really where our resources were, right? And and still are. So, you know, it only makes sense from like an economies of scale perspective just to pick up more properties within this area. But we love Ontario, of course. Uh, but yeah, we did move into Edmonton um, last year and maybe there was more to come in Edmonton as well. But as far as mandate, we're Canada wide. Um, so wherever the resources are, we'll, we'll sort of have a look at it. And it's all a business at the end of the day. You understand like multifamily is a business, mm -hmm. right? So um, wherever it makes sense, really, just from, from our internal thesis perspective, I guess. Right? Well, so what's better? Is Alberta or Ontario better? <laughs> Loaded question. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. The reason <laughs> I was asking. How many people can uh, we? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll take a quick stab at that. So, uh, well, well, I'll, First of all, just so you know, I'm joking because we, <laughs> we, had, um, we had some people in here from, from Alberta and we kind of, I, I guess we got into that a little bit. This was a while ago. This was this year and one of the clips that we took and I, I where did it go I guess it was on Instagram somewhere it got like almost two million views after yeah. and we realized we're like oh my god when you make people dislike each other on the internet Alberta versus Ontario and people start like just fighting about it because all these comments were like oh you know we're better because of this we have Connor McDavid we have Austin Matthews we did these <laughs> random things and um, it's just it just like the algorithms pick it up and it goes crazy <laughs> but yeah I'm not knocking anyone from Alberta I'm, I was just joking but, but go ahead yeah I'm curious what do you what, so what do you see in the different dynamics so, I, I can't speak for every single residential real estate investor. That there's many different tools that investors have in their toolbox to, to achieve whatever goal they have, whether they're buying pre-construction, they're flipping houses, they're doing a long-term buy and hold, which is our bread and butter. Um, but because we're long-term buy and hold, and because our residential fund pays very high, very stable cash flows, that's a top priority for us. Now, we like Edmonton, frankly, because of the cap rates that it offers and how well insulated it is from changes in the employment uh, landscape out there. Um, a lot of people lock, love Calgary. They're flocking to Calgary. Everyone's heard about the growth story out there. The fact is their job market is actually more reliant on the energy sector uh, that's concentrated in certain areas yep. in a way that doesn't make us all that comfortable. So we're getting a much higher cap rate, which 
leads to better cash flow positivity out of Edmonton. We're seeing an employment market out there that's more diversified. So they still have that commodity exposure, but they have a massive public sector, right? And they have an emerging tech scene as well. So Does seeing, Edmonton have a big public sector? I didn't know that. They do. A lot of government, oh. a lot of oh, government really? workers there. And again, very strong, stable jobs, great pensions. And so these are people that are going to continue to pay rent over time. Huh. Right? You, and you guys say you, you you were saying you pay out a, a high cash flow. Yeah, so what 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 do you guys aim for? Like, what is the typical payout there on that fund? We're currently paying an annualized yield of five point eight four percent. Okay. Okay. And that's paid out in doled out in monthly distributions, right? So just like you're going to buy a triplex and receive monthly rental income, our residential fund is going to pay our investors the exact same way on the fifteenth of every month, like clockwork. And just like your rental revenue is going to increase across time, our distributions continue to climb higher and higher over time as well. The monthly is nicely do, do, nice. Do, do, do a lot of, like do other people that do this type of thing usually pay out monthly? Is it quarterly or yearly or is it monthly? Is monthly common? I think it's fairly common, right? I mean, uh, yeah. from, in the private space, at least, even in the public uh, market, I guess, even public REITs, I mean, there are yeah. some that do pay out monthly, but um, private space, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's fairly common. But again, I think there are some that pay out quarterly, but, you know, everyone likes to see that cash flow come in on yeah. the 15th of every month, which is uh, the case for our investors, at least. <laughs> um, you know, it just, it's just a nice feeling when you know something's coming on the 15th of every month, right? Can, so. can you choose to reinvest that? Is that an option or else? Absolutely. Yeah. So you can either take it in cash or you can reinvest it as part <laughs> of our reinvestment program and, and we're sort of in, you're sort of incentivized to reinvest it as well because you can purchase in new units at a bit of a discount so mm-hmm. to the unit price so. yeah and then you're taking advantage of the benefits of compounding yeah. which i'm always astounded when i talk to clients how little they understand compounding, compounding. i feel like the, the the human brain just can't process the effects yeah. of compounding einstein called it the the ninth wonder of the world or whatever the case yeah. may be. you gotta see right what, you have to once you see it visually you're like holy crap yeah it starts to make a whole ton of sense and, and most of our clients, they're investing with their registered accounts, right? They're using TFSAs, that lira from some old employer that you left seven years ago or, or an RSP, right? So in those instances, you can't take the cash flow anyway. Oh my so God, a lot of those so clients, funny. they're just reinvesting it, right? I have a lira, I think. <laughs> Everyone, <laughs> Everyone's pretty sure they have a lira somewhere. It's yeah, a life insurance company. No, because I used to work at the region of Peel. Yeah. And oh, when I worked at the government, yeah. <laughs> and you know what I did? I parked it. This is, this is now... Oh my God, when did I leave there? 20 something years ago. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to park it in these like emerging market funds or something. So I'm like, it's like emerging markets. Those That's like high risk, right? But yeah. it's high growth. So I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, no problem. Like I don't care about ups and downs because I can't take the, like to your point, I can't take this money. My understanding is almost like ever, right? And so, so you're so, 65? Yeah. So I'm, I, I get, so I'm like, oh, let's just leave it there. Well, that, that's usually what you find with the case with anyone that we speak to with, that have registered funds, Lira especially. They sort of have it parked somewhere. They don't really have ownership over it that they know of, and they're not even really actively managing it. So they, they sort of forget about it. But then they realize, wait, we have something here that we can at least utilize or leverage to invest in something that we either understand or we like. Yeah. Um, why not? Right. So yeah. that's what I, last year I find is when uh, one or two years ago is when I finally looked at it and I'm like, oh, I should do something with this. And because af- after 20 years of yeah. these funds, Jeez. <laughs> I had the same amount of money. I'm like, how the hell with the price of everything going up? How the heck can I have the same amount of money in here? And uh, yes, I took it, but I, sh- I should, I forget what's in there. I should, I should talk to you guys. And, and everyone does. And Lira's are notorious for that, <laughs> right? They're in some high fee mutual funds. You're not really certain what it is. They don't really go anywhere. And I don't know why, out of all the registered accounts, the TFSAs, RSPs, Liras, the Lira is the biggest culprit of wealth destruction. Not because it drops in value, but just because it just doesn't even appreciate with the broader market. 
Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah, and people yeah. don't seem to care about it because they just forget about it. It's out of sight, out of mind, yeah. right? So when you guys go to buy another, so in the fund, so if I, when you go to buy another property, how does this, this thing work? Because then you guys are raising additional capital because if, if you know, the fund... Or do you, is there always just extra money flowing around in the fund? Like, how does this thing work as an investor? Yeah. So if I'm trying it's, to understand it. We'll, we'll unpack it a bit. So for, first of all, Equiton operates two funds. And then Equiton isn't the owner of the funds. We don't own the properties. We're asset managers. Okay. Our job is to add value through active portfolio management to maximize the value of the buildings and the amount of cash flows they generate. That's our mandate. Our investors own the buildings that are in the funds because they own the funds. So. We're looking to acquire more and more assets as we take in more capital. Well, I'm incumbent on you, Mr. Investor, to give you a return. I got to give you that 5.84, right? So I'm not going to hold your money in cash. I need to put it to work. So as we accumulate more capital, we go out and buy more buildings, right? We buy more properties and we put them under our management. And that's how we've been able to grow the fund the way we have. Got it. Okay. Okay. And you well, two funds. What, what are the two funds? So we have a long-term buy and hold fund on residential real estate. We yeah. call it the apartment fund for short. And it's the exact same thing as any single investor going out and buying a residential property, managing it themselves, taking in rental income, participating in some appreciation. Uh, it's That's exactly what it does. We own and operate apartment buildings. And again, we maximize not only the value of the building, but also we maximize cash flow. That's our mandate. And we do that through active management. So it's a value add strategy. Okay. And before you touch on the other one, what's the, so then how do you get the appreciation? Because so in theory, if the building, if the portfolio appreciates by I mean, call it 10%. So when someone someone's able to exit the fund, how easily is it to exit the fund? Is there like a waiting period or, you know, is it locked up for a certain period? And then I guess, when it, do they get the value of that building at that time? Like if they've been invested for a few years and and, and, and in theory, the value went up? Mm-hmm. Cause you want to take that one? Yeah, I mean, so in terms of valuation, we get all of our buildings externally appraised on a quarterly basis, right? So CBREs are external appraiser. They come in, they provide a valuation on every one of the buildings. So at any given time, when we mark our net asset value, and we do this on the first of the month, your, you know, our, our unit price is a true reflection of the actual valuation of our portfolio, we'll say, right? So whenever these investors entered versus whenever they exit, they are getting the true market valuation of the actual properties within the fund. So that's how we sort of, you know, keep our valuation in line in terms of how we uh, price our unit price. So our unit price will increase or decrease, uh, and that'll be driven by the appraisal reports that we receive. Exactly. Sorry, I was not. When yeah. an investor buys in, they're buying in at the market price for the portfolio of assets, and that's reflected in the unit price, which you can think of as a stock price, right? Might be fifteen seventy-five, might be twenty-four eighty-two. When they sell that investment, they're really selling it back to us because we're a private equity firm, right? There's no secondary stock exchange or market to, to buy and sell these. So they're really knocking on our door and saying, Equiton, it's been fun, but I'm buying a cottage. I want you to buy my units back for me. And we will at their request. And we're going to pay them the market price as of that day. Okay. And that's how it works. And how is, is there a waiting period if you want to sell or can you sell, you know, if I want out, I can usually sell back to you guys within a few yes. days or something. Well, How's that work? Here's the rub. And it all comes down to the fact that we're not a stock right? There's no secondary sure, yeah. to buy these things. And it also comes down to the fact that we're long-term investors, right? I'm not day trading buildings. Yeah. You don't I'm want people coming properties. in and out of this type of thing every, exactly. every week, right? Yeah, for sure. When I buy a $50 million property, I'm buying it under the pretense that I'm never going to sell it or at least for a decade. So we have minimum holding periods on the investments, right? So for our residential fund and income and development fund, we're looking for a five-year commitment, right? Because we need the timeline for our clients 
from a, a time horizon perspective to be aligned with the strategy we're employing, right? And like I said, we're long-term buyers and holders. That said, our investors can redeem their investments at any time. So in our industry, we call it a soft holding period. And that's just jargon for the following. If you want to redeem before five years, you can. However, if you redeem before that five period, uh, five-year period, we're going to be charging you early redemption fees. Now, yeah, that's fair. it's not I mean, the way we make money, but we use the fee structure to incentivize yeah. the five-year commitment. That's normal. And this type yeah. of thing, intuitively, that's normal. Sense, like right? it's just the people. You know, if people haven't invested this in this type of thing before and they're used to the publicly traded REIT or something like that, you know, they might they might be like, "Oh, that's that's weird. Why are you guys doing that?" But in this type of thing, that's that's normal. That well, you know, in, even yeah. intuitively, right? You think about it. It's real estate. In order to have real estate and extract value out of real estate it takes time to put that money to work for one and then it takes time to extract the value out of it right so and, and part of our discovery process whenever we speak to any new prospect or client and we have an, they have an understanding that you know it's going to be a longer term hold we are a longer term fund and the benefits of being a long-term investor of course right hmm. so what's the other fund you guys do yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so the second fund we have is called the Income and Development Fund, and it's more of a jack of all trades fund. It's got a bunch of different asset classes in it, all within the real estate industry. But that's not the development projects that you do on a, on a no, case by those, case. No, okay, okay, those okay, are something that. else yeah, okay, entirely. Okay. So the Income and Development Fund is broken into two halves. You can think of a pie chart. It's split right down the middle. Part of the funds invested in very consistent, very stable income producing investments, and it pays a monthly cash flow coming from those income assets. The other part of the fund is invested in long longer term, higher growth development projects, right? So as I said, it's a jack of all trades investment. You're getting exposure to those long term, high growth developments. But while you're waiting for them to come to completion, you have your monthly cash flow being paid to you on the 15th of every month, like clockwork. So you look for, in that case, there's I mean, more potentially more potential upside. You're right. right. It's got a higher targeted annual return than the residential fund. Yeah. The residential fund is is on the lower risk spectrum of investments. It's very consistent. It's very conservative. It's very stable. The income and development fund has a higher return profile, um, but it's extracted over a longer period, right? Because you need time in the fund for those development projects to of turn course, over, yeah. right? If That's you're going to stay in it for six months, it's a terrible idea, right? Because we may not pay a development out in the next six months or seven months or even a year, right? So it lends itself to a longer term strategy. I got it. What and then? So what are you guys seeing just in 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 the space right now? It, it, it totally like. Are investors a little bit gun shy right now for it at real estate? Are the people just kind of wanting to stay a little bit more liquid? Because a lot of the investors we speak to right now, they're just like, you know what? I'm. St I was talking to a guy the other day, for example, and he was looking at picking up another property, but he's like, you know what? I'm just going to hold off just for now. I'm going to wait to the spring. I just kind of want to stay liquid, right? I just want to kind of almost see where the mm -hmm. dust settles. He's like, I feel like we're kind of through the worst of, you know, we have an idea where things are going to be, but he wants to see where the dust settles. So he's just kind of got his hands in his pocket. Are you guys seeing the same type of thing from investor, from your typical investor flow to you guys? Or is there, you know, something else that you guys are seeing? Yeah, there's just definitely some hesitancy and some fear, right? I mean, um, I'll just, at some point, people do want to see where we settle in terms of interest rates, right? I mean, um, I think at this time next year, we'll be at a place where where, um, you know, we're in a more normalized environment, we'll say, right? I don't know what the rates are going to be in next year. We don't have a crystal ball, of course. But I think there is some of that, you know, uh, hesitancy to pull the trigger. But again, uh, as, as Lawrence mentioned earlier, a lot of our investors are coming through by way of registered plans as well. So they understand that there's a longer term 
uh, commitment involved in registered plans anyway. So they understand that, you know, at some point, if real estate and if and when it normalizes, um, you know, it, it won't have as big of an impact on them if they come in today versus if they come in mm-hmm. six months from yeah. now. Right? So. That's the challenge I think sometimes we face when we're talking to to investors because they come to us sometimes, so new, new people, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they're looking at real estate as like an asset that you trade. Yeah. And they're just like, well, you know, the market's here and it's here. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're right. Like, I don't know where it's going to, maybe it's up a little bit next year, maybe it's down. Like, I don't know. But we always, Tom and I have always talked about every property we own. We, we similar to exactly what you were just sharing, you know, we're like, it's five years. Like five years, are we happy to own this for five years? And then after that, are we actually happy to own it longer? Mm-hmm. Because who knows where if five years from now, but that's kind of like the horizon that we start with. And it's, it's always surprising to me how many people look at real estate as like they're trying to always time the market because, and I'm like, guys, you're not like, and maybe some people do, but you're not trading this stuff because it's, first of all, pain in the ass and the fees involved to get in and out of a property. Mm-hmm. It's, they're high. So you can't trade this stuff on a regular basis, but that, it's the way people look at real estate generally. Yeah. But, well, but it's, the way, it's the way people look at everything. I mean, we live in a, a world driven by social media, right? Everyone wants information now. They want everything they want now. Um, and real estate just doesn't lend well to that. Mm-hmm. It, they're, they're not the same thing. Especially over right? the last few years, because we had these like unreasonable appreciation numbers. For sure. So everyone, I mean, we're seeing a number of people now that they, you know, they, they're, they're, they've come to us and they're like, Hey, like I'm, I'm in the jam. I got these, these closings coming up in four or six months. Some condos they bought, they're like, Oh, why, you know, where are these? Why, why'd you buy them? I don't know. I just felt like I didn't have enough. So they walked into the sales office and bought like three units because there was some low down payment structure and they didn't have to worry about it for a certain number of years. And now they're like, I don't even know if I can close on these things. Yep. So every at that, at that period of time, people were literally just throw, throwing darts and just like buying stuff. Exactly. Right? And more it, or less speculating. Right? Yeah. Exactly. hundred percent. That's the difference. I'm glad you said they're that. not investing. They're speculating. Yeah. It's, there's a, and there's a, a real difference there, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Sorry. What were we going to say? Well, uh, that worked for a long time. Yeah. There was a five, six, seven year period where you could literally go blindfolded yeah. and throw a dart at the board and, and make 20%. The problem is, like you said, now you're closing on these properties and then the tide's out and we can see who's not wearing any bathing suits, right? It's the way the world. Um, one thing I will say, because people are very tepid on real estate right now, right? Interest rates are high. And, and what I see is I, I see this sort of disconnect between prices that sellers are willing to accept and what buyers are willing to pay. Mm -hmm. And eventually I'm of the belief that eventually it's the sellers that are going to have to give in and and eventually we'll see a little bit of price deterioration in the future. But that's more in the retail um, single family home market in the institutional real estate side, which is the side that that we play in, it's the pool we play in. um, It's actually a very good time for us right now. And so Equiton is a firm that's going shopping right now. And I'll explain. We're competing with other institutional buyers for a $50 million apartment building, okay. right? We're not competing with Joe Schmo from down the street. So when you're a publicly traded REIT, whether you're cap REIT or Rio Can, whatever the case may be, you raise money by issuing stock, right? That's what you do. You will go in the stock market and you issue stock. You wanna issue that stock to raise money to buy new buildings when your stock price is at its highest, right? Because if I need $100 million, I don't wanna dilute my company. So I wanna issue as few shares as possible at that high valuation. 2022, publicly traded REITs fell 17%. 2023, they fell another six to eight, depending on which REIT you're looking at. Their prices are depressed. The last thing our competition today wants to do is issue stock at these lower valuations to go out and buy more properties, Uh which means we have a competitive advantage because again, we're private, 
we're not, we're completely agnostic to that type of market risk, right? So our unit prices are very stable and we're able to raise capital and deploy it more efficiently than a lot of our competitors today, which is something nice. But why would they, what's the reason that they don't want to issue more stock at the depressed prices? Because they don't, because they could still raise the capital. Like it, because it's dilutive, right? Like if I need, if you have a stock price of 100 bucks and I have a stock price of 50 bucks, you need 100 million to buy a property and I need 100 million to buy a property. Well, at 100 bucks, you're going to issue 1 million shares to get the 100 million. So now you've diluted your 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 equity by a 100 uh, or by a million shares. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm at $50 a share, so I need to issue 2 million shares of ownership. I'm diluting at a lower valuation much, much more than you are. I never thought about like that from the from the REIT side of things. Now, they can take on debt instead of issuing equity, but then again, they're paying sky-high interest rates, right? So publicly traded REITs are getting fleeced right now because they have an inability to raise capital efficiently. And for a private equity firm like Equiton, it's a huge competitive advantage for us. Huh. How does that impact the current the investors that are in there right now? Because then they have the same number of shares, but they get diluted. So when they sell, it just forces the price down that, that way. And, and that's what we're seeing with the public markets, oh. right? And we're seeing a whole host of other market risks they're taking on, right? Things are going up and down with just the currents of the market, right? Uh, Janet Yellen's going to come out and say something about treasury issu issuances, excuse me, and then the market's going to get scared and the whole market's going to sell off the S&P 500 and your publicly traded REITs right along with it yeah. for no rhyme or reason, right? And private firms like Equiton don't operate that way because... There's only one thing that impacts the value of our fund. It's those quarterly appraisals that Cause was talking about ten minutes ago. So right? for the so so for the fund, you guys are looking at apartments and multis. But then, are you also looking at on the development side of things? Are you guys looking at land and that type of thing as well? We do, but we have standalone projects that we do development investments with, and the income and development fund. But Cause, maybe I'll let you speak a little bit more about that. But hold on, hold on, just on the land. So hold, are you looking? So I understand you have individual projects, but you guys mm -hmm. do have. Like right now, are you looking at land? We're, we're not land banking. So anytime we acquire a parcel, it's for a particular development that we've already executed due diligence on and have a vision for. So we're not buying cornfields and hoping that the Doug Ford government's going to somehow okay. envelop that into the urban uh, zoning. So That's from, not the, what we're doing. from the bit that you've seen with development, has the land value, where have the land values gone over the last couple of years? Cause? I don't even know if I can answer that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think they've held quite stable. But mostly because, again, there's that discrepancy between buyer and seller prices. So okay. a guy might be sitting on a, I don't know, a car dealership that he's, he's owned for he's 25 just not gonna sell years. It for and less. he's just not going to yeah. sell it, right? Because he's just going to wait until interest rates go back down to 2.5% if they ever do. And he's going to try and sell it for 15 or 20% more. The mortgage was paid off seven years ago. We probably yeah. inherited it from his grandfather. He doesn't care. Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got you. I got you. So, and, and as buyers on the buy side, we're being a lot more particular, right? A lot of developers now, given the interest rate climate, are looking for things like VTBs or much longer closing periods to do more thorough due diligence. Whereas three years ago, you would pretty much waive all conditions and throw an offer on a property, right? We saw that on the individual household side, but we saw it on the institutional side too. Uh, Equiton never really conducted ourselves that way because that's a surefire way to get burned. But we saw a lot of uh, developers do that, right? Shoot first, ask questions later, we'll make it work. Are you right? guys, uh, so for those individual projects that you're looking at, are they more 
geared towards high rise or low rise? No, we typically st um, stick with the mid rise formula. Okay. Um, and, we, and like our formula is fairly uh, consistent across the board. So we, we like to pick up a project on a busy street or major street, close proximity to the highways, close proximity to public transit, um, close proximity to, to the lake if we can. So it's around that GTA corridor really. Um, and just mid rise condo, that's sort of our, our comfort zone. Um, you know, between you know, we'll say four and six years in terms of duration mm -hmm. uh, to completion, I think that that's fair to say. Um, what's what's proximity to the highway? What, what like to a, you know the public transit and highway? When you say proximity, how close is that? Is that five hundred meters? Is it one k? Like what do you? Yeah, but ideally, I, think, I mean, I know it varies. You know, but if, within a couple of kilometers to the yeah, for sure. Yeah, every, every project's a bit different, sure. right? So maybe you're closer to an urban center, so you're closer to to downtown Toronto. Well, my need to be close to a highway is now lessened because there's other transit infrastructure available, whether it's streetcars, subways, buses. So we, we don't necessarily need proximity to a highway in isolation. It's more proximity to transit infrastructure, period. We're looking at overall accessibility uh, from a holistic level, mm -hmm. we'll say. But we're considering other things as well. And, and to Kaz's point about why we do mid-rise, there, there's a few reasons. Number one, we're not a multi-trillion dollar development firm, right? We're not Menkees, we're not Minto, we're not Tridel. Um, and the second reason is because a lot of other developers do what we do, right? They offer standalone development projects. And, and as these companies grow, the scale of their projects grow. And when the scale of a development grows, the time to completion grows, right? You're not doing a unifase low-rise development. Now it's a four-phased 15-year project. It's a master plan community, whatever the case may be. And that's actually left a hole in the market for these shorter developments. A lot of folks I speak to, they're maybe in their late 50s, maybe broaching early 60s. They don't want to lock up 50, 100K in a seven, 10-year project anymore. Yeah. It doesn't make them comfortable, right? But a three and a half to five-year project, much more amenable to. Yeah, right? yeah that, that, that makes sense. I mean, you see, you see it for sure. I know the uptake on some other, some pro longer, more, um, sorry, some That's uh, okay. longer term uh, projects. Yeah. Uh, you know, some people will, will pause at that for sure. For sure. And it's not that the longer projects are bad. Don't get me wrong. It's just that different investments are good for different. 100%. Right? If, you're, if you're a younger guy and you're investing with that Lira that you got from some previous employer, you don't yeah. need it for 20 years. Throw it in a twelve-year project. Jeez, right? man, I wish I knew about these projects when I when, when I was twenty-something and I was, Let's see. you know. But at that time, at that time, the rules were different because to get involved in a lot of this stuff at that time, especially the projects, you had to be accredited, and then they changed it to accredited. And what's the other term again? Uh, so accredited and eligible. Eligible, yeah, accredited, right. eligible, and yeah, even non-eligible can can still invest. It's just they're capped in how much they. Get. Oh, is that what? It, yeah, but in the past, wasn't it always a? I think it was prior to twenty sixteen. It was largely only to the you know high net worth individuals, institutional level investors, right? Then in 2016 here in Ontario specifically, the rules changed um, to allow for more participation from, you know, the eligible side, eligible investors as well. And then that must have grown the industry, I guess, Absolutely. as well, right? Because yeah. just more people could participate. Mm -hmm. Eligible investors are the bedrock that we've built our business on at Equiton. And what's eligible? Right. So anyone listening, if they're not familiar with it? Yeah. yeah. So in terms of criteria, individually, they're either earning a, an income of 75000 or more, um, or a household of 125000 or more. Or they've got a net worth of four hundred thousand or more. As long and, as they meet one of those buckets, and net worth, can you? What do you? You can take into like a principal Every, residence into that primary residence, yeah, okay. financial assets. The, the easy way to say it is: if you're from the GTA or the Greater Vancouver area and you own real estate, 
you're an eligible investor. Yes, period. pretty much. <laughs> right? For a period of time, unless yeah. you bought it like at, in February. Yeah, unless you bought it last year and your loan value is 80%. 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20. I lose track of time. I don't know. COVID threw my almost into 2024, right? So, so <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I see the hairline. My, my, my daughter reminds me every day that I'm getting old. So, yeah. Um, cool. So then what is the latest thing? Like, you know, is there anything different you guys are seeing right now? Or is it just the same? And I don't mean this in a boring way. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think real estate, to kind of your point earlier, is boring. And I, I think that's be. almost, that's a feature, right? Yeah. It's and not, if it's, it's not, you're, you're probably not doing it right. You're probably then, not looking at it the right way. You probably have the wrong guru or coach. Honestly, if you're looking from excitement from real estate, it's, it's not right. I, look, I remember this world um, that was this, this development world. And there was, uh, you know, other, there's been a lot of people that have come and gone in this world. Yeah, sure. And uh, we had some people in this world and they came in, they came, they have multiple actually, but one, two actually stick out and they came in and they, they were telling us, you know, about all the projects and here's, you know, if you invest, here's the return. It all sounds great. And I'm like, well, I don't get it. Like, what about this? You know, what's the downside? They're like, no, it's, it's no, there's no downside. It's all guaranteed. Like it's all. And I'm like, man, as soon as someone in real estate starts telling me that, that like my return is guaranteed and like, there's no, there's no, everything's going to be okay. There's no possibility of any downside. I'm like, I, I run for the hills. Yeah. So we ran from the hills from those guys. Um, and that worked out well because they didn't, uh, they've got into a bunch of legal trouble. And then there was another one, same thing. They're like, you know, they were, they're like, the, 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 um, it was a bit of a smaller firm, but we said, well, what if the market turns and the prices change? Like, we're going to make everyone whole. How the hell are you going to make everyone whole? You don't even know the number. Like, how's that? Like, how yeah. how can you even say that? You're going to make everyone whole until you file for bankruptcy. Yeah, which, which was case, about it was I about a no year. Recourse. Yeah, and it was about a year later that they, yeah. we, they, it, they were gone. Of course, and I was like, well, so of course, yeah. And we've and typically run. We've typically run from this type of stuff. But to be fair, we've kind of worked with you guys for a while over time, and you guys know we're super hesitant with, with this stuff. We're like, who are these guys? Yeah. What are they doing? What mm-hmm. you know? But uh, you you cornered me at the gym and said, hey, I got to talk to you. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, look, I don't typically like to bug people at the gym. Um, you know me. I go in, heads down, go do my thing, get out. And you know um, me. I'm usually there with a hood up. Exactly. If you see me in the morning. Well, you used yeah. to see me in the morning. You, and you're always in the morning. I don't. Yeah. I was like, I don't talk to anyone. I'm like, yeah. they're like, who is this guy in the corner just so, doing his thing? So I was telling Lawrence, you know, I was a little hesitant to even approach you. So, you know, I don't like to bug people at the gym. This is their their own time, you know. Um, That's fine. But, but no, I, mean, no, you know, I, yeah, I, mean, I said, are you kidding? Yeah. I'm like, go, <laughs> yeah, 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 go yeah, get them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what's, um, Maybe. then what are you guys, what are you guys seeing for your, your own stuff? Like what, with your, wh- how are you setting stuff up now for, so you have a son coming. I do. Right. Do you have kids? Cosmic? No, I don't. Okay. So then we're going to pick on. Mm-hmm. Sure. Let's we're, do it. Okay. We're going to pick on Lawrence. Okay. All right. So for your investments, for your family, and your son now coming down the pipe, knowing what you know, knowing what you've been through, knowing what your paisan paisanos have been through, you know, when they came here, like, how do you communicate what's left and what the upside is? Because we have obviously the, the, the concern with people now is they're like, well, look where prices are, look where affordability is. There's like, you know, there's challenges there. Like we can't, you know, it, yes, maybe interest rates go back down to zero. Maybe they don't. So affordability gets a little bit better, but maybe not so good. How do you navigate this world for your family right now? And I'm not even just talking with your, like with Equiton products and stuff. Like just what's your personal mm-hmm. thinking around this type of stuff and affordability in real estate? Like are we, are we hitting up against this stuff? Is that still a viable option for your family? I think about it all the time, honestly. Even before I knew I was going to have a son, I think about it all the time. Um, I'll, I'll speak about the real estate environment, but honestly, that just this this blows out just more generally. 
the real estate market over the past decade has gotten really speculative, really hairy, right? Out of line with fundamentals. Mm -hmm. We can say that for certain. What I'm seeing in the market, and this is how Equiton's conducting themselves, this is also how I'm conducting myself personally, it's more of a retrenchment to back to fundamentals. And when I'm talking about fundamentals in real estate, two words, cash flow. That's what I'm looking for. And personally, there's lots of ways I can attain that cash flow, right? And we're blessed actually in some ways to have high interest rates where they are because I can put my money in a money market fund and get what, 4.8 to maybe 5.2% interest. Yeah, which seems crazy because over the last decade, you know, you just, you look at banking, you look at those products as interest, interest rates, you don't even, they don't even compute as something to even consider, right? Well, it never existed. Like our generation of investors, we're, we're in our mid thirties, mid to late thirties, we'll say, but <laughs> yeah. we never knew interest rates, risk-free return didn't exist, right? And you had to speculate, right? That's, that's what was done. And now there's been a paradigm shift back to more fundamentals just because you have to, right? The, the, the days of 20% capital appreciation on a single family bungalow is gone. So when you don't have that level of appreciation, what are you left with? You're left with carrying costs. I need cash flow, right? And so that's how I've been structuring my portfolio. And then you're looking at it for cash flow for that's your return or you're looking at it as cash flow to own the asset with the greater that the return that you're actually after is the self-liquidation of the asset or the or the potential of further appreciation over like the long term like not 20 percent. if we go back to historic norms of about seven percent you know which is seems uh, i i was surprised that it is seven percent but but around here it's seven percent year over year Mm -hmm. i I think look every investor is different i'll speak for me personally because you asked me and i'm sitting in the chair (laughs) i'm looking for cash flow positive cash flow that cash flow is not just a carrying cost it's not a means to an end so that i can hope and pray that this investment's going to double in value on the capital appreciation side the income that the business generates, and when you buy a property, you better believe it is a business, mm-hmm. that is your profit. Just ask Warren Buffett. When he deploys capital in an insurance company or Coca-Cola or Apple, he's doing it because of the free cash flow. And he is probably the most successful investor to have ever lived, Yeah. right? And I've modeled my perspective on that same thing. I'm never, ever, ever buying a negative cash flow building. Never. Mm-hmm. I will never, ever do it. And. I need the cash flow because it gives me peace of mind, but it also helps with the carrying costs and all of that other stuff, right? You, could, you don't want to be in, negative, in a negative carry situation. Bringing it back to Equiton, why do you think we buy properties in Edmonton instead of Calgary, right? Cap rates are higher. It's a better cash flowing investment, right? Why do you think people invest in the residential fund? It's that routine cash flow that people have come to expect, right? It's funding their retirements, right? So it's a retracement back to these fundamentals that I've done for myself. I think a lot of investors are doing. It's just more defensive. It's more comfortable. But if you can, if you can, so go, so back to that point. Your your the fund aims the 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 res, the apartment funds. What you aim for almost six percent, five five inch high fives, something like that. So I know it's not guaranteed, but I mean, what what's the aim? What you the fund earlier? targets total returns on average ten percent. That's total returns because of that's a combination of the capital appreciation, but also the cash flow. Okay, so right? let's just go back to the cash flow component because I think that's going to be the answer to my question. Mm-hmm. Because if the cash flow component was about high fives, mm-hmm. if I remember, yeah. we'll call it five point eight. Okay, because if if someone can go now and get the GIC for five yeah. percent, why why like there, but you know because and where this is coming from is yeah that you're getting higher yield in Edmonton, but you're getting taking on higher risk generally with you know in a, in a normal investment in landscape the the higher yield is associated with higher risk right that's normal so you're get you're taking higher risk there so you're getting a marginally higher 
yield on the cash flow component from the fund. But if you can go to, um, I don't think anything's risk-free. I know it's called risk-free, you know, but if you look at what happens with, with bonds over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. that was considered a risk-free rate of return right now. And they've got slaughtered. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, but if you can go and say, you know, to the quote unquote risk-free rate of return to the banking at 5%, you know, like don't investors look at that sometimes and be like, well, I'm not going to invest in this fund right now. I'm just going to. Of course they do. That's that's why a lot of my capital is parked in a money market fund doing the exact same thing you mentioned, just supposed risk-free. So so what's the upside for the apartment fund? They got to take that into consideration, right? Two things. Number one, the average return that we deliver over the last five years has been 10.7%. Okay. Okay. And that includes last year. Last year we did 14%. In a market, by the way, where interest rates were high, real estate assets depreciated, right? So we have a nasty habit of generating very consistent returns year after year, agnostic of what the market's doing. So I know I'm getting that 5.8, but I also know that I'm going to get something slightly more. But let's let's take the appreciation off the table. Why would I invest in a risky asset at 5.8 when I can get a risk-free asset at 5? That 5.8 I'm getting is marginally higher than the risk-free rate I'm getting. The 0.8, is it worth it? It may or may not be to you. Depends. It's a personal question. But what I know is worth it is the incremental upside on that cash flow. Because today it's paying 5.84. In a year and a half, it's going to be paying 6.04. In four years, it's going to be paying 6.9. In seven years, it's going to be paying 7.8. Because insofar as we can increase the profitability of our buildings, which we do through active management, I can increase that distribution amount to clients. But couldn't someone then wait and get into it at that time? And I'm just the reason I'm asking this is that you were saying when you look at the investment, you're looking at just the cash flow, which is which is fair. But no. if you're just looking at just the return, that like that, you know, it really what you're looking at, what what really what you're explaining now is like, yeah, well, I'm looking at the cash flow, but it's this also this this higher rate of return, which I'm really considering longer longer term. I know you're talking in the current example, just about the cash flow, the cash flow number potentially increasing. But I'm talking about that, that, you know, the 10 point something or the 14% last year, whatever, that was really a combination of the cash flow mm-hmm. and, and some sort of equity build or appreciation. So that's what people are making the decision off of. So I, you kind of so got to take that into fact. I, I, I see your though. question, but you can't really just wait on the sidelines to get that higher yield, right? So, so you're, you're saying, well, why don't I just make a risk-free investment today? And then in four years, when, when the apartment fund starts yielding 7%, I'll just invest that. Sure, yeah. But you can't do that because the yield doesn't really fluctuate that much. And the reason why is because as the distribution goes up, the unit price of the fund is going to go up. So you're always going to get approximately around 5.8%. It could go up to 6. It could go down to 5.5. But anytime you buy in, you're going to be sort of within that window. Right? So if you buy in at a lower the price, ceiling. then and, and but the if you buy in up. at the price, yeah. you're locking in that that cost basis. That's the technical term. So when the distributions increase, your yield actually goes up. Got it. Right. Got it. Okay. Okay. Let you off. <laughs> no, no, no. I was just trying to understand because that's yeah. the way I look at it. I think you've got to combine everything. Like the cash flow component is yeah. essential for. It's a like you said. It's a business. And you if if you if you buy a business with negative cash flow, then the goal of of buying that business should be to turn it around to create positive cash flow, therefore increasing the value of the business. Mm-hmm. So you're getting then the cash flow component from an operating standpoint, but then you're also at the same time generating equity. And I just feel like if you go back to the Warren Buffett approach, I just look at the long term, you know, any real person that's had long term success in investing in, re- in any industry, very few people that it has it been just from just a, a 
it, 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 the income matters, but it's the creation of the equity in whatever asset class they're in, then they're able to leverage that equity to then grow that asset base and create more equity. Mm-hmm. And then it's that equity over time really that grows for people. And that's why me personally, and that's why I'm asking just trying to get an understanding of what you're thinking, because I look at the, the, the creation of that equity that I can leverage or not leverage, but the ownership of a percentage of assets underneath me in my financial picture and for my family, that changes our lives because then I can always fall back on these assets. I'm not just dependent on whatever's going on in my current bank account or you know one, one stream of income or whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. right? So that's just kind of the way I look at it, right? Yeah. I, th- I think I look at it the same way, but I see that long-term capital appreciation or that long-term equity accumulation in an asset I see that as a secondary or even tertiary benefit. Mm -hmm. It's gonna happen in the background. I know it's gonna happen, why? Because I'm paying down my mortgage and I know that asset classes generally will appreciate over time. Maybe not year by year, but decade by decade, you better believe it. So that's gonna happen passively in the background. I know that, I don't need to worry about that. Right now I need to worry about my cash flow. Right. And then that'll take care of itself. The left hand will wash the right yeah. on that side. Yeah, it's yeah. always going to be there. Yeah. So we are. That, that's exactly how I look at it, too. It's, it, it, I, I wouldn't. Um, and I think because lately and I'm sure you guys have seen the same thing. Many people get caught up in just the their their the, the cash flow becomes or the income becomes secondary completely because they're just like, well, the price of this thing is going to go up. Whereas you can't bank on that. So you need to invest for the income. And then knowing that over time, that's going to create the other things, yes. you know, along. Well, you used to be able to invest like that and to great success, right? A lot of people have built empires, small empires based on that exact strategy. But what we're seeing now is a complete paradigm shift. And I think yeah. that's my point. It's it's this retracement to cash flow, as I said earlier. You need to start thinking about your real estate assets a bit differently. Yeah. Because what got you to this point in your portfolio and to your professional investing career isn't going to take you to the next step. Yeah. It'll actually burn you. Let me right. let me ask you something about um, the long. I, I mentioned it earlier. The long term historic average. This is the residential real estate price on the Toronto Real Estate Board. It's a seven percent um, annual appreciation. That's when you when you compound that out. It's high, right? It's it's it, it's strong. And I know that's you know there's ups and downs during that period, but that's kind of ridiculous in some ways. Do you think that's feasible that real estate can continue to appreciate over, call it over a 10 year period, right? Can we still hit, even if it's not 7%, can, do you think it can hit 5% a year? Like that, that ends up being another 50% increase, which when we look forward today, it seems kind of nutty. Yeah. I don't know. That's a, that's a tough question to answer. I, I have my answer. Yeah. Oh, what's your answer? <laughs> In a word, no, it's not possible. And uh, the, the reason is simple. Housing affordability is a factor of two different market forces. Number one is asset prices. Number two is incomes. So asset prices can appreciate at 7% historically as they have, and that'll continue to compound. But insofar as household incomes aren't appreciating at something along those lines, Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be seven, even if it's five, fine. But insofar as those two aren't aligned, houses will continue to get unaffordable. Eventually that growth will stop, right? You can only take on so much more debt. Yeah. yeah, right. I agree with you. That where I get confused is like if I look back ten years ago, and I told you where the numbers are today, and I'm talking about myself, I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, it's just it's hard for us to visualize. So to, to the point about compounding that we were talking about earlier, when we look at those numbers, it doesn't make any sense, yeah. right? We bought a we bought one of the student properties that we bought now probably twenty years ago. 
We bought it for $230,000. It's probably worth, it's come down, so it's probably worth seven fifty eight hundred something like that. When we bought it, the guy that we bought it from, he, I want to say it was like 40-something thousand when he bought it, or 30-something thousand, and he had just an interest-only mortgage on it for years, for decades. That's all he did. And we laughed about the, how much it, it must have been about 40, because we, we laughed that it went up about five times, and we bought it for roughly 200,000, so it must have been 40 and change. Wow. And then we looked at the price that we bought it for, and uh, Tom's like, this is going to be a million-dollar student rental, and we laughed. We're like, yeah, yeah, million, can you imagine a million dollars? <laughs> like, this property by McMaster is going to be a million dollars. Yeah, okay. Um, but it's been 20 years and we look at it and we're like, holy shit, like this thing's actually approaching. Yeah. yeah. And it's ridiculous. And I know there's, I know we've seen this interest rate, like this period where interest rates have dropped and things like that. But do people care anymore? Like how much the price is or do they only care about the payment? And the reason I'm asking this is because if we look at the debt numbers, I have a great chart that I should have showed you. Uh, we, we mapped out the Canadian M2 uh, a, a amount mm-hmm. against the average Toronto real estate board price. And if you see this, this graph, it, it like mirrors, they mirror each other. Not exactly, but the trend of as M2 gro- growth increase, increases, the, the prices increase. It's like, you're just looking at it and it just becomes mind boggling. And we're like, if we're in a world where they're going to inflate more things away and continue to print, then do asset prices continue to get the benefit of that? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's tough to say, uh, honestly, it is because I, I'm just I agree to, with your logic. Like every, everything you've laid out to me is accurate, but I'm not then, even saying that they're going to, I'm questioning, like, I'm just, yourself. I'm trying to figure it out myself. And that's why I'm asking you guys. Cause you're in it. So, so, so sorry, go ahead. Theoretically, I agree with you, but there's going to be a point of terminal velocity where those two things can no longer stay aligned with one another. Mm-hmm. And I think we're approaching that point. And, and you made an interesting comment earlier. You said that people are willing to pay any valuation because they don't use that as their barometer. They're using the carrying cost, their payment. Yeah. Right? Now, that payment is inflating because of interest rates, right? So that has to affect the asset prices. For sure. Right? And so we're going to see a natural correction. And like, I'm not going to sit here and call for doom and gloom. I've, I've built my, my career on real estate. Um, I believe in it vehemently. But do I think it's going to grow at an CAGR, a compound annual growth rate of 7% for the next 25 years? Um, that remains to be seen for me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I'm not talking short term. Yeah. I'm short, I don't even look at like, you know, it's no, I'm always like ten, five, no. 10 year horizons. And that's what I'm, because the way I, I, I wonder, I'm like, did they come and change the mortgage rules here, which gives it again, then more legs afterwards. Right. Cause so like we've had, we've had a correction, we've needed it. And I, I hope that things don't appreciate the same way. Like, I own real estate and I'm hoping they don't appreciate the same way they have. Like it's, it, just, it, it's, it's, it's not for, it's not a sustainable market. Yeah, exactly. But then I'm like, man, but if they mess up this whole economy, then what do they do to try to fix that? And I'm like, I just, I don't see a world where longer amortizations are coming in mortgages, mm-hmm. where am, uh, longer amortizations, sorry, are not coming. Not coming. You said yeah. they, I'm assuming you're talking about our, our government. Well, they're, they're the yeah, smart the, ones. The, the, the puppet masters. Yeah, yeah, they're, 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 they got it all figured out. Yeah. You know, so I'm just like, I'm trying to I mean, get into the minds of the geniuses. You know? yeah. Oh yeah, the geniuses. Yeah. That's, that's a separate podcast, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Uh, there's one saying that I keep going back to in my brain as we're having this discussion. What, the government doesn't know what the hell they're doing? No, Oh, okay. show okay. me the motivation and I'll show you the outcome. Yeah. Right, so we're gonna come up on an election 
election year next year. Um, the Liberal government is now talking about affordability, about affordability. It's, it's a hot topic. Yeah, last the year they cycle. said they don't give a shit. It's not yeah. a problem, right? But, yeah, but yeah, they're all up of against... a sudden housing matters, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but does it matter in the way they think it does? Because do you know who votes? Baby boomers. Baby boomers. Do you know whose retirement is based on sky high real estate valuations? Baby boomers. Yeah. Right? So they're walking a very thin line because, yes, it's trendy and hip to have affordable housing. But do you really want to start destroying the wealth of other Canadians as well and alienate, alienate the other side? And so they need to be very careful with their verbiage and their legislation, right? Mm -hmm. Because yes, increasing housing supply, giving uh, bursaries and, and tax cuts to developers to produce more rental housing, all of this is going to help, but it's going to have maybe unintended consequences for them. That's, and, and they don't want that. Yeah. See, and that's what I wonder. I'm like, they want greater affordability, but they don't really want the affordability through price drops. And not just from the baby boomers, because I think it's the banks, because the banks have all these loans out. Yeah. So if they get a big price drop, this is a big problem for them. We can't be in a big deflationary era, era, like era because if we go through that, the people that hold, hold the mortgages, the banks are like, they puts them on, on shaky shaky ground pretty quickly. Yeah. So, and I, you know, and we're under the belief, Tom and I, we're under the belief the banks never lose, right? Because it just <laughs> fe always feels that way. Mm -hmm. So if we look at that and the politician, you know, there's lobbying and all this stuff. So that's what I just try to figure out. And I don't have a crystal ball either, but I'm just, you know, so that's why I'm like, if they can hold things while, you know, they've had some, some wage appreciation, they can get some wage appreciation if they change some rules. Cause I don't see how, how even in this coming election, there's not something for either first time home buyers or something. If it's not this election, it's the next one saying, Hey guys, I know, you know, things are really not affordable. Here's what we're going to do. You know, because we care about you so much as a first time home buyer, we're going to allow you to do whatever this, 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 or whatever the number is to get into the market. We'll help you this way. We'll extend amortizations. We'll do something else. I don't know what it is, mm -hmm. but I'm like, I don't see how that incentive is not coming down the pipeline because it, they're trying to buy votes. Yeah. I'm not saying it's mm -hmm. right. I'm not saying where the market's going. I'm not saying the market's only going up. It goes sideways down, whatever. I'm just like extrapolating this out long-term. And to your point about the motivation, I'm like, if they're making the rules, the motivation is to get votes. They need to get these votes from somewhere, right? I don't think they want depreciation in asset prices in the real estate space. I don't think they want that because it's going to alienate an entire voting class. Yeah, not in a big, big way. You know, there's like little yeah. fluctuations yeah. there, of course. Four yeah. or five, six percent. That's that's not that's not depreciation. I'm talking about a crash. Yeah. They don't want a 20% revaluation downward. What they I think they want is nominal growth in line with GDP. So anywhere between two and four percent for the next five to seven years. And that's that's the soft landing, we'll call it, right? Yeah. So it'll give supply a chance to catch up with demand. It'll give them the opportunity to get a little more wiggle room a few years down the road where they can actually lower interest rates and alleviate carrying costs on Canadians. All the while, everything will just start to sort of level out. That's what I think they're after. That's what I'm of the belief we're going to have. Mm -hmm. I'm not calling for an impending housing crash. Nothing that I'm seeing leads me to believe they're ever going to allow that. Our economy is too dependent on real estate valuations for the government to allow that to happen. It would be pandemonium here if our real estate assets fell 20%. Could you imagine? Yeah. Well, it'd be, every, it'd be everywhere. Well, we ha and we have, you know, we kind of have, you know, but, but the, the peak was such a short. Well, 20 or 30% from the peak of last yeah, year. Yeah, which was, a, to me, it was like which a 60-day it, it it, I, I agree completely. <laughs> yeah. And it was like a 60-day thing. I'm like, yeah. does that really I, I mean, from you today, know? Yeah. Right? as, yeah, as yeah. we sit here in November. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I do think we're just going to see a little bit of subdued growth. It's going to grow with inflation or with GDP growth, 2 to 3 to 4% a year. Still going to be decent. But again, if you're not getting that 20% capital appreciation, 
cash flow becomes more important, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. 100%. Yeah. And it's, to me, I've always looked at cash flow as that's your safety net in real estate. Yeah. And basically, the, the, the bigger the cash flow, the thicker the net is beneath you. I look at if you're walking a high wire act, if you have like, you know, no cash flow, well, then you basically have like little to no safety net. If you have 50 bucks, well, you got a tiny little one. If you have 500 bucks, you know, whatever, you, you can extrapolate the numbers out. Obviously, they're bigger on larger properties and mm-hmm. projects, right? But the the more the cash flow, the, the better, right? It just kind of, it's your insurance policy. Mm-hmm. So, sure. yeah. um, cool. Anything else you guys want to share? Um, I guess, who, what about who's, who should they, re- if people are like listening to you guys, they're like, hey, I'm kind of interested. I have a Lira yeah. and uh, I've had it for 20 years and they've they made more money than me. They made 50 bucks, but they're actually looking at a real return or whatever else, the RSP, accredited eligible. If people want to reach out to you guys yeah. for some, some investments, what do they do? Yeah, we'll leave you with our contact information, but I don't know. Is there a general inbox? I, think? I, I would say just visit the yeah. website yeah. and of course, reach out to the folks at Rockstar for the listeners at home if, if you guys want more information. Um, I'll, I'll do a quick plug for Equiton, but sure, really yeah, yeah. do the plug, do the plug. We, we have a pretty diverse basket of real estate solutions that we offer clients um, centered around passive real estate investing where you're not a landlord yourself. You don't need a massive down payment. You don't need uh, financing. Um, we've got different strategies for different people. We've got high growth development projects. We've got rather conservative cash flow machine investments, and that would be the residential fund that we were chatting about. Um, if you're curious to learn more about what we do or even just want to chat about real estate, give us a call, go to our website, reach out, book a meeting with one of us, and we'll just talk real estate. Yeah. The, the reality is our team just loves to talk about real estate. We get paid to talk about real estate all day. It's a pretty awesome thing, just like you. Do you get sick of it? No, never. Do you get sick of it? No, because I, I intentionally chose to be in this position, yeah. right? I mean, I intentionally chose to be in this industry. I could have done, I guess, any other, anything else, really. Were you in this industry before you were working with Equiton? So I was in the private real estate space before Equiton, yeah. but just working largely with land development opportunities, right? And then prior to that, I was actually in the corporate world, so, yeah. Corporate world's a big yeah. shift. Oh, well, you guys man. are very, you, you know, you've dressed down today, actually. Yeah, you don't usually, have a yeah, jacket I got the or anything. I, yeah. I, I wore the vest. I dressed up for you guys. I put on long sleeves <laughs> instead of a no t-shirt. No flip-flops? This yeah. is, no, no flip-flops. Oh, nice. Were we wearing flip, was I wearing flip-flops last time we met? I'd like to think you were. Yeah. Probably, yeah. yeah. I think it was yeah, shorts yeah. and flip-flops. Yeah. It was summertime. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's hot. You got to yeah. wear flip-flops. Yeah. When I come back from, um, from Europe in the summer, I think it was get, just before you went to you, oh, actually. Yeah, to get me out of shorts and flip-flops after just like living that life for, for that period of time, it's it's a tough transition, I gotta be honest. The first time I put socks on, or especially <laughs> pants, when I have to go put a pair of jeans on because it finally cools down and yeah, I'm getting cold. That's when the vacation's over, when the leg goes through oh, first. Oh, man. And you're like, oh, It's I'm the broken. worst, yeah. <laughs> it's the absolute worst. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that. But uh, cool, guys, this was good. We didn't touch on some of the development stuff that you guys are involved in, so we'll have to have you back True. and we can kind of touch on, on, on that stuff a little bit because I'm be curious curious to see what you're seeing um, yeah. in that space, which is primarily mid-rise. You don't do, because, and I, I know, I understand why, because of the, the pain in the butt of getting like like larger subdivisions built, you don't really do much in the low-rise space. They're, right? they're elongated projects. They're more expensive. The zoning and the yeah. approval process is much more complex. Um, and frankly, they're just not as profitable, especially now with um, the green belt coming back. It's it's just it's a whole other thing. Yeah. So last, we, just, last, we try and stay away from it. So last question: those mid-rise projects. I mean, obviously Toronto, there's demand for those. Like, what other areas are you looking at that on the development side? Mm-hmm. Are you guys looking at? Right now? Is that primarily Ontario based as well? Yeah, very 
entirely Ontario yeah. right now. So, and is it major? Like, is it just like Ontario stuff? I'm uh, sorry, Toronto stuff. Yeah, or? I'd say mainly GTA. But um, you know, if anything's you know along that 401 or QEW corridor, yeah, might strike you us. We'll look at it, but it's really just that you know. GTA That's really corridor. the heart of everything, man. Yeah. Those two highways yeah. going from yeah. biggest the biggest city in this country to the biggest economy in the world. Yeah. Where we're, I've always felt like as as real estate investors were. Cursed and blessed, I guess, because blessed in a way that there's so many different areas to invest in that like can make like good sense yeah. versus when you go to, you know, maybe upper New York state, you know, compared to the, the a lot of the fundamentals in this, this uh, golden horseshoe, you know, greater Toronto, Hamilton area versus some, some like, you know, Buffalo or, or Rochester or something like that. It's a vastly different market. So we get the benefit of that. Yeah. The downside is it's pushed prices to, to this point too, mm-hmm. because of the demand for it. Right. So, sure. but, uh, okay, cool guys. That, that, this was, this was really great. So, so, so thanks. So just visit, visit the website. Yeah. You can reach out to our team. We can share anything with yeah, you. Sure. I don't know, no email address or something, or I can, I can uh, add yeah, it. We'll put it, we'll put it in the show yeah, notes can, if yeah. you're going to put it on YouTube and, and okay. it, honestly, just go to www.equiton.com. Um, you can click on either of our beautiful faces, <laughs> book a meeting, whatever you guys would like. Okay. Very easy. Awesome. Sure. Thanks guys. Thanks. Thanks. For Thanks for listening, everyone. For Tom and I, it's always interesting to speak to other people, other investors, see what they're up to, see what their opinions are in the asset classes that they're playing in, or those segments of the real estate market specifically. Since we spent so much time looking at different things in real estate, we want to make sure that our biases don't get in our our own way. So it's nice speaking to other people to to get their opinions and and get their thoughts and maybe sometimes challenge our own beliefs or or see if we agree, disagree, and and where to go from there. So it was a a, a good conversation. We enjoyed it. And if there's anything, um, if there's any follow-up and you want to reach out to Lawrence or Cosme about Equiton, maybe to invest with them, questions or any follow-up, you can get their inf- information, like they said. It's just Equiton.com. So E-Q-U-I-T-O-N.com. And you can look up their uh, contact information there. So it's Cosme Reveredo and Lawrence Raponi. And that's it, everyone. Until next time, your life, your terms.